I believe Africa represents the most elegant use case for a Bitcoin standard in existence. In the paragraphs that follow, I will explain why. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got a... We're, we're actually going to take a break from the Bitcoin maximalist thing. Uh, uh, we're going to come back. I want to do Nick Carter's piece. Uh, I had a couple of people um, in the audio notes who were like, yeah, yeah, we should, you know, just for the sake of argumentation... And to, you know, give it a fair shake, we should cover Nick Carter's uh, rebuttal, I guess not really rebuttal, his, his answer to Bitcoin maximalism. He calls it a eulogy for Bitcoin maximalism. Um, but uh, I wasn't really all that fired up about it today for some reason. So we're actually going to read, uh, we're going to take a pause uh, and we will come back to that because I want to be... I want, to re I want to be really amped up for my Bitcoin maximalist episode. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a really great article that I've been sitting on here for a couple of days that I wanted to get get to. And this one is, is by uh, Charlene Fadarepo, who also um, is one of the co-authors of Bitcoin and the American Dream. Um, this really, I was also lucky to do the audiobook for that one. Um, so, uh, and it's, it's a short one. It's a, it's a lot like, it's kind of like the little Bitcoin book and a couple of those others, like where there's like, six or seven authors or so and they kind of do like a book sprint to like get get a collection of ideas out and this one's specifically for bitcoin and the american dream i mean is specifically for policymakers. so it's it's one to kind of appeal to the regulatory environment and the political environment to try to from their perspective or from their framing to get them to understand the value of bitcoin um and i think it's actually i mean as much as i just kind of despise the whole apparatus. Um, I think it's really valuable to you appeal to people on their framing, um, and uh, and Bitcoin and the American Dream is a really good one for exactly that. That's that's kind of why I reached out. I really wanted to do that one. Um, but uh, Charlene, uh, one of the co-authors, um, is uh, has written an article here titled The Path to a Bitcoin Standard in Africa. And this is on Bitcoin Magazine. And I just really, really like this topic because I feel like the more, the more I think about it when I bump into it, when I listen to Anita Posh, when I listen to uh, Charlene, um, or like, like I, I hear about like things that are happening in Nigeria, and Nigeria specifically just because they have so much adoption. Um, but... Uh, in multiple countries in Africa now, I really feel like Africa is is a really, really underappreciated part of the Bitcoin world. Um, so this is a this is a really fun article to kind of get like a broad perspective of how to think about it, and and I want to do a a good a solid guy's take on this one. So uh, real quick, let's hit our sponsors, and then we will jump in. I want to thank. CoinKite, Swan Bitcoin, and Fold for supporting this show. 
These are Bitcoin-only companies that have been around the block, that have you know survived bear markets and stayed true. They've stayed total signal, and they provide awesome products that are stuff that I use all the time. I stack with Swan every single week. Plus, oh, Swan, Swan Bitcoin has an app now, um, which is really exciting, and it's super easy to use. I've been using it for a while, actually. Um, I was in the beta. Um, and then Fold has the Fold debit card that gets you sats back on everything in life. And then CoinKite, everybody knows CoinKite. They have literally a hard, Bitcoin hardware. They, they have everything Bitcoin hardware that you could imagine. And of course, the cold card MK4, which is just an unbelievably cool Bitcoin hardware wallet. It is a must-have. So discounts, uh, my special links, all that good stuff in the show notes. So check them out. All right, with that, Let's get into today's read, and it's titled The Path to a Bitcoin Standard in Africa by Charlene Faderepo. A Bitcoin standard in Africa could mean economic growth, higher quality of life, and financial freedom for all Africans. In this article, I will be discussing the current state of the rapidly growing Bitcoin ecosystem across the continent of Africa, and how this progress will enable the path toward Africa's Bitcoin standard. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines an ecosystem as a, quote, complex community of organisms whose environment functions as one whole ecological unit. In the context of the continent of Africa, the Bitcoin ecosystem is a nascent but promising network of peer-to-peer -peer and traditional Bitcoin exchange platforms, community educators, investors, Bitcoin core developers, entrepreneurs, and enthusiasts working in concert in pursuit of an African Bitcoin standard. I believe Africa represents the most elegant use case for a Bitcoin standard in existence. In the paragraphs that follow, I will explain why. Africa's Bitcoin Ecosystem's Key Strengths Widespread Monetary Pain Creates Fertile Ground The continent of Africa is home to 1.4 billion people who span 54 countries and 9 provinces. It is estimated that 2,000 distinct languages are spoken on the continent, which adds to the rich diversity that exists from North to South Africa and from East to West Africa. Despite the diverse and rich nature of the culture of the continent, there is one common experience that exists across nearly every country in Africa. This common experience can be expressed as, quote, monetary pain. The continent of Africa boasts one of the world's most fragmented banking, payment, and currency systems, which adds significant complexity to simple financial tasks, like the payment of a bill, sending money to loved ones, or accepting money as a business. Government corruption, years of currency mismanagement, and hyperinflation have resulted in debased fiat currencies that provide little value to everyday African citizens. In June, the inflation rate in Nigeria hit a 65-month high of 18.6%. Worse still is the case of Zimbabwe. Annual inflation in Zimbabwe hit 192% in June 2019, a 13-month high for the country. Yet it is the very brokenness of Africa's collective banking, payment, and currency systems that embodies Africa's greatest strength. Africa presents the perfect opportunity for a permissionless 
censorship-resistant monetary system like Bitcoin to not only survive, but thrive. For many African countries, the necessity of Bitcoin is proving to be the mother of invention. As far as progress, there is no African country further along that path towards an African Bitcoin standard than Nigeria. A June 2022 study by the financial payments company Block Incorporated revealed that 43% of Nigerians shared that they would use Bitcoin to buy and sell goods and services. Furthermore, Nigeria was the country with the highest comfort level of using Bitcoin for remittances of all of the countries included in the 9,500-person study. According to data, nearly 25 million Africans live outside Africa. The large number of Africans living outside of Africa drive Africa's huge remittance market, which is among the largest in the world. In 2019, remittance flows to sub-Saharan Africa were recorded to be $48 billion. Nigeria alone received about half of the total remittance market flows, and Bitcoin is already filling Nigeria's huge remittance market gaps. It should be noted that the cost to send money to Africa averages around 9% as compared to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal for Remittances, which is 3%. In addition, the cost of intra-country remittances in Africa are extremely high as well. These high money transfer fees imposed by banking incumbents are predatory and they are hurting Africa's most vulnerable communities. Thankfully, Nigerians and many other Africans are proactively switching to Bitcoin to avoid these expensive fees and to ease the pain of their country's inefficient banking and currency systems. Africa's ecosystem is strengthened by youthful, ambitious population demographics. The other key strength of Africa's Bitcoin ecosystem is favorable demographics. Western countries have much older populations as compared to African countries. In 2020, the median age in the United States was 38 years old, and the median age in the UK was 40 years old. However, the same year, the median age of the continent of Africa overall was much younger, at 20. A look at individual countries provides even more favorable statistics, in Nigeria, the median age in 2022 is 18.1 years old. Kenya is next at 20 years old, and South Africa is slightly older at 27. African countries have youthful, vibrant populations that are hungry for the innovation and opportunity that an African Bitcoin standard could present. Last year, I created the Bitcoin in Nigeria show, which is a Bitcoin education video podcast focused on amplifying the stories of Bitcoin founders and ecosystem builders that are leading the Bitcoin revolution in Nigeria. In my opinion, the sheer magnitude, scale, and progress of Nigeria's people-led Bitcoin revolution just couldn't be ignored, and it needed to be celebrated. An April 2022 report by QCoin revealed that 33.4 million Nigerians which accounts for 35% of the population aged 18 to 60, currently own cryptocurrencies or have traded cryptocurrencies over the past six months. I believe that a key driving force behind Nigeria's Bitcoin adoption and surge is due to what I call Nigeria's young, tech-savvy digerati, who are successfully using Bitcoin to solve their daily monetary pain at scale. In the previously mentioned study by Block, 
Nigeria emerged as the top nation with the highest rates of optimism about Bitcoin's future, at 60%, as compared to the 29% optimism rate in the United States. It should also be noted that several of the existing Bitcoin platforms servicing Africa were founded by Nigerians. Africa's youthful population of digital natives, especially Nigerian digital natives, are helping to lay the groundwork for an African Bitcoin standard. Africa's ecosystem is strengthened by centers of activity, platform diversity, and favorable regulatory environments. The original mandate of the Bitcoin in Nigeria show was to focus on Bitcoin's progress in Nigeria. But after one full year of running the show and meeting so many incredible Bitcoin entrepreneurs in Uganda, Kenya, South Africa, Ethiopia, Namibia, and other African countries, I quickly realized that the show's scope was far too limited. Nigeria was indeed the first country in Africa to enjoy significant Bitcoin adoption trends at scale, but it certainly will not be the last. I have since broadened the scope of the Bitcoin in Nigeria show to tell more stories of the incredible African Bitcoiners building Bitcoin-based companies, platforms, and communities across the continent of Africa. A common misconception that I hear often is the statement that there are not enough Bitcoin financial services platforms operating in Africa. This false statement also assumes that African consumers don't have access to reputable, credible Bitcoin platforms. Thankfully, this is not the case. African Bitcoiners have a vibrant mix of both peer-to-peer -peer and traditional trading platforms to purchase and sell their Bitcoin. While all platforms don't work in each country, and the exchange volume varies by platform, this list includes, and is not limited to, Binance Africa, Local Bitcoins, FTX Africa, Paxful, Crypto.com, Coinbase, Bitnob, Helicarrier, Bycoins, Patricia, and Machinkura. For African Bitcoiners with higher risk tolerance and a desire for privacy, there are also in-person Bitcoin trading options that occur via private WhatsApp and Telegram groups all across Africa. The ability of any country's Bitcoin ecosystem to grow and reach its full potential is dependent somewhat on a country's regulatory environment. And much like Africa's collectively fragmented banking, currency, and payment systems, the regulatory environments across African countries range drastically from full regulatory bans on Bitcoin use to full government agency support. The fastest Bitcoin ecosystem growth and development in Africa is concentrated in five core countries, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Botswana, and Morocco. Nigeria leads Africa in peer-to-peer -peer trading volume. In 2020, Nigeria was ranked among the top two countries in the world on Paxful's platform with a volume of $566 million. South Africa also has high Bitcoin trading volumes and has one of the more favorable regulatory environments due to the South African Reserve Bank's stance that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are not currency. However, in July 2022, the South African Reserve Bank indicated that more cryptocurrency regulations are coming. Morocco has the highest peer-to-peer -peer trading volume in North Africa, although cryptocurrency use has been banned in Morocco since 2017. The wide range of existing Bitcoin financial services platform options, the concentrations of ecosystem activity by country, and somewhat favorable regulatory environment supports Africa's path toward a Bitcoin standard.
Africa's Bitcoin Ecosystem's Key Development Areas The growing African Bitcoin ecosystem is not without its challenges. A recent article by Abu Bakar Nur Khalil, the CEO of Nigeria-based Bitcoin-only venture capital fund Recursive Capital, discussed the critical need to develop a pipeline of skilled Bitcoin core developers based in Africa. In addition, widespread power grid infrastructure limitations also slow the growth of the African Bitcoin ecosystem. Sub-Saharan Africa, the region of 45 African countries below the Sahara Desert, occupies 13% of the world's population, but 48% of the share of the global population without access to electricity. The region's power sector is underdeveloped, from energy access to installed capacity and overall consumption. However, recent interest and investment in renewable sources like hydroelectric, wind, and solar power via public-private partnerships are creating momentum for positive changes. For example, the Capecho Wind Farm is Kenya's second-largest wind power project and has a generation capacity of 100 megawatts of clean, renewable electrical energy. In Namibia and Botswana, the Mega Solar Project is the largest solar power program in southern Africa. This project is scheduled to achieve 2 to 5 gigawatts of renewable solar power energy for a region currently dependent on coal mining. These projects support the trend of a positive future for stabilizing the power grid across various countries in Africa. The existence of more reliable, low-cost power sources introduce the opportunity for the development of a strong Bitcoin mining sector across sub-Saharan Africa in the future. Africa's digital divide offers a formidable challenge as well. The term digital divide refers to a region's gaps in access to internet connectivity. Data shows that 75% of people in Africa do not have sufficient reliable internet access. Another study found that internet penetration across Africa represents only 36% of the population. It should be noted that the same study estimated the global internet penetration to be 62.5%. Despite these challenges, African Bitcoin entrepreneurs like South African Bitcoin developer Khothatsol Nako, the founder of Bitcoin custodial wallet Machankura, sees a huge opportunity. Nako created Machankura as a lightning wallet that offers Bitcoin purchase and selling services to Africans who use feature phones, which are basic single-function phones with no internet access. Unlike in the United States where smartphones are most common, Feature phones comprise a large share of the mobile phone market in Africa. In early 2022, 22 million feature phones were shipped to Africa, as compared to 19.7 million smartphones. Feature phones cost less and require less energy to power. When I spoke to Nako in a recent episode of the Bitcoin in Nigeria show, he said, I see Bitcoin as a form of money. I want to get other people to see Bitcoin as a form of money. Innovative companies like Machankura will accelerate Africa's pace toward a Bitcoin standard. Earlier, we discussed the 2,000 distinct languages spoken across the continent of Africa. Despite the number of languages spoken, many financial education materials, including Bitcoin education materials, still remain in English. Thankfully, translation projects like Exonumia, based in South Africa and led by NACO, and communities like Bitcoin Mata'ani, led by Kenyan Bitcoiner Guantai Katarima, are working to convert key Bitcoin teaching materials to African local languages. 
The creation of culturally relevant solutions to solve Africa's unique challenges is the way forward in pursuit of a Bitcoin standard in Africa. The Promise of a Bitcoin Standard in Africa The promise and potential of a Bitcoin standard in Africa becomes more realistic each year that African communities suffer from the economic woes of excessive currency devaluation and hyperinflation set in place by authoritarian governmental regimes. Countless other decentralized finance, Bitcoin-backed, or native blockchain liquidity token solutions pretend to solve Africa's problems, but only recreate existing centralized systems where wealth remains under the control of the most powerful. In the case of Africa, the movement to a Bitcoin standard is not a nice-to-have. It is a must-have. I see it as a moral imperative for humanity. Bitcoin protects human rights, provides critical currency stability, enables intra- and inter-country business commerce, supports low-cost remittances, and offers individual Africans agency and ownership over their financial lives. Bitcoin allows us to imagine a safe, lawful, and prosperous Africa, where financial freedom and economic justice are equally accessible to one billion-plus people across the continent. Despite the aforementioned cultural complexities, infrastructure limitations, and other significant challenges, I could not be more bullish on Bitcoin in Africa. In the words of French poet Victor Hugo, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. All right, that closes out Charlene Faderepo's piece, a path, or The Path to a Bitcoin Standard in Africa. Big thanks to her for writing this piece and, of course, to also to uh, Bitcoin Magazine um, for uh, just having a lot of stuff to read. Um, and uh, uh, with that, let's take a pause right here, hit our sponsor, and then we'll jump back in. So, are you looking for an awesome hardware wallet with air-gapped security for your Bitcoin? So air-gap just means that the device itself is never actually plugged into an internet-connected device. The cold card, specifically the MK4, is an air-gap device. All the cold cards are air-gapped, actually. But this one gives you the option of pl plugging it in, but it is off by default for security. So there's no data communication through the USB port unless you want to use it. And my favorite, my personal favorite way to use the hardware wallet is NFC. The ease of just kind of tapping to send packets back and forth to your mobile, I don't know, it's just slick. The cold card MK4, the newest model, has NFC as an option. Again, it is off unless you enable it for security. But then they also, CoinKite has the tap signer. It's basically a credit card sized hardware wallet that you just tap to your phone. This thing, this thing is awesome. Seriously, for quick multi-sig setups, like on Nunchuck Wallet, which is my favorite right now. If you have not tried this, I really think you should. Um, it's a super smooth user experience, in my opinion. But for a discount on everything that CoinKite offers, not only the cold card and the tap signers, but the sats card, the block clocks, the open dimes, and just tons of other stuff, check them out at guyswan.com slash cold card and use code BitcoinAudible, all one word, for 5% off again, that is guyswan.com slash cold card and code Bitcoin Audible. 5% off everything in the store. All right, let's jump back in. All right, 
So I really liked this piece, and um, I actually have just, when this one kind of came across my list, um, I started digging into Charlene's show a little bit. Um, and uh, like I said, I really think, I really think kind of particularly the English or the, the Western Bitcoin world is missing what's happening in Africa. And I seriously think Africa is like a sleeping giant. There are a lot of different things. I mean, what Charlene breaks down here um, is like spot on. But I even think there are more or just kind of expansions to the ideas that she laid out here as to why Africa is kind of a... Uh, maybe not a hotbed, but just like kind of a perfect storm of being able to benefit massively from a Bitcoin infrastructure and in a position to actually build it out. And one of the things that I think is actually a really critical piece of the puzzle that Charlene kind of hints at, she didn't like go deep into it, but talks about in this article is kind of the lack of political cohesion. So you know, when you look at the Western world, the Western world is constantly making the same mistakes all at the same time, particularly around like COVID and everything that's happening with like, oh, we're just going to we're just going to eliminate carbon. And it doesn't matter if it makes everybody poor and the price of gas goes up 10x in a matter of weeks. You know, like the Western world, some it has this weird sense of like, we should all do this together. Whether it's, you know, everybody's on the WF agenda or, you know, this is like something just about like being in the UN. I, I don't even know what it is, but it's like we're hell bent on all drowning together. And that political cohesion is kind of like a, a centralization threat. It's a, you know, the world works with trying out 100 different ideas and 98 of them fail and two of them succeed. If everybody is just using one path, if everybody is just headed in this one direction and making this one set of decisions, the overwhelming likelihood is that it's of the 98. It's of the 98 that fail and end up destroying everything. But in the free market, when you actually have a market and you have people testing these things out and accountable for their own actions and basically on the line for the profit that uh, that they could potentially make from the success of the idea and uh, on the line for the consequences, for the cost, if the idea fails, you get to try out all of these things without this domino effect of it affecting everybody else, of it causing pain elsewhere. It's, it's the people who are directly involved and directly accountable to the project or the idea that pay the consequences. It's not them making other people pay the consequences. The political system is the opposite. It's them pay, making other people pay the consequences. It's explicitly not being accountable for their failures. It's explicitly not paying the cost. So not only is the decision-making itself screwed up because the incentives are not aligned and the cost is not aligned, you, you, who, who would care really about the outcome of the projects that they engage in um, when they're making enormous amounts of money and getting incredible influence and incredible power and they don't pay for any of the consequences? And all they have to do is make up some stupid-sounding excuse and blame it on the last guy or the next guy or whoever, you know, whoever's standing next to them. And a huge part of the population just kind of believes them. So not only out of sheer probability are they going to fail, 
but they have no incentive to care about succeeding because success is the act of getting the political influence to accomplish the thing. Like you already have the money, you already have the power, you already have the influence. You don't win in politics by succeeding, you win in politics by making people afraid and angry. So the political cohesion in the Western world is an unbelievable threat. And the Western political systems deciding that they're going to micromanage the economy, that they're going to decide how the next trillions and trillions of dollars are invested, and that this is not going to be run by the market, this is not going to have market prices, these things are going to be dictated. These things are going to be dictated and managed by the government. That is socialism. That is communism. That is economic destruction. There's no other end to this. Now, Africa does not have that. That political cohesion is not there. Just like she talked about, there's a wide variety of kind of like regulatory environments and philosophies. There's going, there's going, to, be, there's going to be strong competition among, political, among the political sphere in Africa. And a great example, something that has given me a lot of hope in that regard, is that Africa has basically ignored the whole stick a you know stick a pharmaceutical experiment into everybody's arm and hilariously they haven't had covid problems their their covid deaths are shockingly non-existent and they've had a huge variety the western the western world has just been completely overtaken they all had the same strategy the same philosophy the same health ministers like it's it's in lockstep they did all the same thing they all decided that they were going to segregate people based on their vaccination status it was just a set, a series it was just a set of degrees over how far they got in their goals not whether or not they had different goals everybody had the same goal it was just that some of them succeeded far far more australia just got way australia and canada got way ahead of everybody else but the U.S. is on the same path, holding the same ideas, making all of the same arguments. And I just saw on, uh, in a video today that Canada has just made climate police. They have just enacted a law that creates a police force for climate change. It's like the like Climate Protection Directorate or something creepy sounding like that. And they're... They literally have been given the power to enter any premise, any business, any home without warrant, without any warrant or any charge that they believe, quote, is affecting the environment. And they can search through anybody's electronic devices, they can confiscate their stuff, and they can literally shut down the entire enterprise. They can shut down a business if they believe that they are negatively, quote unquote, and affecting the environment. Now, this is something that I need to, I've just heard about this, um, and I really want to dig into this. I mean, if anybody has any more explicit details, actually, I'm offering up 10,000 sats to anybody who DMs me some links on this to save me a lot of time. Um, but that's insane. That's absolutely insane. You understand, that is the removal of any and all legal protections. Like, like all of the basic rights of the, the assumption of innocence, the right to an attorney, the right to a trial, like every single thing that you think of in the context of a legal right. Now, it's been squashed and pushed into gray areas and screwed up in a 100,000 different ways, slowly and step by step, incrementally. But this, this, if this is truly the way it was described, 
this is a full-on, all-out, it's gone. The idea of affecting the environment is literally anything. Like, and it's not even, it's not even hyperbole when I say that it will actually absolutely excuse the idea of someone breathing or farting. Like, that's not, that's not even something that's made up. There are actual government policies and laws trying to be put in place literally to regulate and control cow farts as if they are a dangerous, that they are literally harmful to the environment because of the methane that they produce. Animals are now harmful to the environment. If they can excuse that, to the point that they're literally trying to, I, I wish I could remember what country it is, I saved it somewhere because it was so absurd, it seemed unbelievable, but they're literally trying to charge farmers per cow for the estimated number of farting. If you can listen to that, that's not a bad South Park episode. That's, I mean, it is a South Park episode, but I'm talking about something people that are in positions of political power who are making this argument in the real world, if the idea of climate police that have absolutely no legal restraint whatsoever in that environment does not scare the living crap out of you, then you are not paying attention to what's happening in the world. But here's the thing. That's the Western world. Africa is not going to walk lockstep like that. And the thing that convinced me that that's the case is everything that has happened around COVID and the vaccines. Even the authoritarian governments, I don't think, have the, uh, the granular level of control. It's not like China. You know, a country without infrastructure can, you know, can control major pieces of things like, and, and be incredibly totalitarian. But they don't have like moment-to-moment -moment total surveillance systems and total control and incentive structures and things like China does. You require a degree of modern infrastructure to instantiate that sort of direct control and power. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be totalitarian and you can't be ruinous to your country, but it means it's a different sort of relationship. It's a different level at which that damage can be done. And that's why I... That's one of the reasons I think uh, Africa has such tight local communities, because they know it, there's this implicit distrust. And, you know, you see, actually see this a lot in South America, or at least people I have talked with from South America say this is they just kind of like don't trust politicians. But in Africa in particular, there seems to be this. Um, and granted, I have a very small test case that I'm working off or uh, a data set that I'm working off of here. But um, and but Charlene reinforces that in this article is the idea of the entrepreneurial spirit, the idea that they're not expecting someone else to build things for them, to build the infrastructure, because nobody ever built them infrastructure. You know, like there's there's a whole subset of the developing world on that continent that I mean, like she said, doesn't even have Internet access yet. And as they start to set these things out, as they get cell cellular communication and they set these towers up, it it's they see the pieces. You know, like the Western world, so many of the like normal population is so deeply ignorant and so unbelievably mentally distant from all of the things that their lives depend on. Cell towers are just these things that some company does, and you just have internet. 
food is just something that comes to my door. And, you know, meat is just somebody being mean to cows. Like, it, like you know, you know, 200 years ago, you never got away with under, failing to understand that you had to kill an animal to survive. And the idea that, like, this kind of veganism movement or whatever, like, it's great. You know, I don't want to hurt animals. That's not an argument. Anybody who is arguing that is ridiculous. But the idea that you think that animals are not crucial to the the food chain the the circle of life so to speak that you're you know if we just eat plants that means that nothing is happening to any of the animals we still have to cultivate all the animals just to do all of the corn and the grain and crap that we eat that is actually bad for us and does not have tons of the amino acids that we need and is not energy dense and doesn't have the animal fats that are incredibly good for you just to produce those things, we have to have all of the animals for the freaking, for the farts, for the, the fertilizer, for the manure. But anyway, that's a random tangent. Just to, to say that we're disconnected. We're disconnected from the systems that keep us alive. And I think that leads to a profound level of ignorance and this idea that you can just make a law and then like things will just happen. But a developing world, a developing nation, a population that is seeing these things for the first time, they have hands-on experience. They're seeing this come up. They know exactly what the pieces of the puzzle are. This, I think that's you know, why you kind of have these generational shifts of just total collapse before everybody like wakes up and be like, oh God, I can't believe we argued about pronouns for three years and now I'm literally going to starve to death this year because I didn't bother to know that our infrastructure was falling apart. And we're literally going to die. Oh, wonderful. I hope somebody learns a lesson from history since this is like the 500th time that this has happened. But I don't see Africa having that problem. Not that their infrastructure can't fall apart and that they can't like succumb to like all of the same problems, but they're in a different position. A lot of the... There's there's enough of the developing world in Africa and South America that is in a different place in their infrastructure build out and they're i refer to this as the infra infrastructure you know leapfrog is that they skip you know because they like so much of the continent missed the industrialization of the early 1900s that some of the first major like communications infrastructure and stuff that they set up it wasn't the telegraph it was literally the cell phone and as young entrepreneurs that sort of technology can move very, very quickly. You know, wireless has, you know, orders of magnitude, more access, bandwidth, um, easy communication, lower cost than something like, you know, phone lines and telegraph, like the original infrastructure that we're having to rip out still to this day in the U.S. to put in the new stuff. Whereas the developing world is going to leap straight to modern technology. And they're going to they're gonna be able to watch the Western world and see what not to do. Where we went wrong. They're not going to look at CBDCs as you know, a, a general set of population. Again, this is about the cohesion. Is that it doesn't matter if a third of them still go along with the Western like ideals and the Western path. What we want is contest. We want competition among these political spheres. We want them to not have the same regulatory oversight. We want them to have a very diverse 
way of thinking and building and a path for the future. And I think Africa is going to benefit from that. I think South America will as well. And I think they're unlikely to look at a place like China or the consequences of the infrastructure that we have of these centralized, you know, the totalitarian surveillance states that are being built over here and the creepy dystopia that is China right now. They're not going to look at that as oh, I really want those things. They're going to look at them as lessons. And they're going to learn these lessons as they are building their own tools out. And the beauty of, of like, there's, there's almost this serendipitous shift that I see that could, that's potential in our future, is that Africa in, in general, like so much of the population of Africa has been totally left out of the financial infrastructure, of the, the monetary, the safe monetary system, so to speak, the, the modern, privileged Western financial world. But explicitly because they are left out, the cheapest, fastest, open source, nobody can tell them they can't use it option is going to be the first one that many of them ever use. Think about how powerful that is in a young entrepreneurial population. I've always thought, you know, this has been a conversation that, you know, El Salvador was basically the like holy shit moment of this idea might actually play out was you know, you know, looking back kind of from the game theory of like 2013, 2014, when you're looking forward and you're trying to see politics in Bitcoin, you're trying to see the path that this is going to take. One of the things that was a conversation that came up, and uh, I think I remember Jameson Lopp talking about it way back in the day. Um, in fact, just a couple of years before El Salvador, it's, it's something that like just kept recurring. But the idea that the first adopters, the first political adopters of Bitcoin would be small nations that have been left out of the financial of the global financial elite that who have been left out of the G20 that aren't quote unquote important in the monetary world they're the CIFA nations of Africa that have been forced to put all of their bonds buy all of their bonds for the French population, invest all of their savings into French banks and are forced to use the French currency and then get debased by 50% overnight because France wants to, do, wants to accomplish some task or has some debt burden that it really, really needs all of these African countries and populations to pay. Those countries are going to be the first ones to look at a thing like Bitcoin and go, hell, why not? Now, an authoritarian regime is still going to want to have control over their currency, but the individual population, the grassroots communities in these countries that know their money is crap, that don't have this idea that, oh yeah, we're just going to keep using our money indefinitely and I'll just save in my country's currency, that know that it's just going to be worth, it's going to be worth less than half as much in under a year. They don't trust their currency. They don't trust that their government is fixing everything for them. Those are the sorts of populations that live like 70% of their lives in the gray and black markets because they die if they don't. The people under those conditions in those sorts of uh, political regimes, which there is a lot in Africa, there's a lot of South America, there's a lot in Asia, 
They're the ones that do the hassle of the peer-to-peer -peer markets. That's why Paxful is such a big thing in exactly those sorts of environments. That's why a lot of the times that you're buying give, a bunch of Westerners like myself sitting here cozy in North Carolina are buying gift cards on Paxful or something, you're actually buying it from somebody in South America because they're trying to move money overseas. They're trying to accomplish things and their peer-to-peer, -peer they, that's their job, that's their business, that's their livelihoods to be able to move money around. This is a huge innovation for a lot of different economies in the world. To me, it's just kind of a clunky thing that isn't as good as Cash App, but uh, you know, gets me discounts. It gets me a better price. But as developing countries that have always been monetary servants instead of monetary masters, I think it is going to be far, far more valuable and far, far more secure and better for Bitcoin's future and Bitcoin's protection if 20 small countries adopt it and start mining it and start building open source software and start adopting the infrastructure and the lightning network and they can send money between each one of those countries instantly and for almost free for, for a fee that is so tiny to get money without, that, that can move anywhere in the world that doesn't even know if it's crossed 30 borders or if it's crossed any borders, it doesn't know and it doesn't care, it simply is there. And that it doesn't have to be set up by big banks. It doesn't have to be set up by a government program. It can be set up by one person in a local community like Bitcoin Beach, like El Zante, and they can set it up and, and run it for their 20 closest friends and family members. That sort of grassroots movement, that sort of benefit to a thousand different communities all over the world... That is a powerful, powerful movement, and we're just getting started. You know, that's what I think the next bull run in Bitcoin is going to be, where, where we're going to, as we get through this trough and we're still cleaning out leverage. In fact, I just read recently that this is actually another big leveraged play by some company um, that's kind of, they basically doubled down on the same bet that burned them in the last thing when it crashed all the way down below 20 the first time. But anyway, God, just some people are never going to learn. Um, but uh, in that same way, like as we kind of get through this bear market and we start to level out and we start to grow again, at some point, we're going to grow back to a point, back to a place um, in both the Bitcoin price and in the expansion of the infrastructure and the ability of the market to move capital. That the bet that El Salvador took is going to be, it's going to be extremely obvious that it paid off big time. And when that happens, there will be a blueprint. There will be a blueprint, there will be a path, there will be a set of software and a set of businesses, there will be potential profit margins, there will be business plans and revenue reports that show exactly how much has come in, uh, how much is able to move in and out of the country, what the cost savings are, what the GDP change is, what the new tourism rates are. You're going to see all of these things. And countries that have been monetary slaves for a century, for multiple centuries or longer, are going to see a way to just kind of slip out from under the thumb of the global financial system.
And I, for one, cannot wait to see it. And I think Africa is going to play a massive role in that new world. And I think the growth potential is just outsized to almost any other continent. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see it. I really, I really hope, I really think that there is a bright future there for um, uh, a huge part of the world population that has just been kind of just gotten the crap into the stick for a long time. So anyway, um, uh, huge uh, thank you to Charlene for this um, and for also her our podcast, the Bitcoin um, in Nigeria, uh, and the Twitter Spaces and stuff that she does, um, and for Bitcoin in the American Dream. Um, great article uh, got me got me riled up today. That's why I kind of like skipped on the Bitcoin maximalism stuff for a little bit because I don't know this is what I was interested in today. So that's what we do on Bitcoin Audible. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to our sponsors CoinKite, Swan Bitcoin, and Fold for making my Bitcoin life so fancy and comfy and sats stackery in all of the different ways and every multiple multiple times a day. While I was recording this, I stopped. I got like a couple of like Alp, Apple subscriptions and things and I stopped and I spun um, to to um, get some free sats on those small bills that came in i got a dollar on a five dollar one um that's fold man fold debit card you gotta get that mess um and uh you know what am i gonna do i'm gonna withdraw that crap to my coin kite i mean to my coin kite my cold card uh to my hardware wallets my multi-sig and uh i'm gonna stack on swan in fact i think i stacked yesterday if i'm not mistaken if you're not using them you're missing out they're like they're like some of the best companies in the space literally um, but uh, yeah, a thank you to those guys for supporting the show. And a thank you to you, to the Audionauts, to everybody who listens, to subscribes, who subscribes, and who takes this Bitcoin journey with me. I'm Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>